Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Fringes of the Faith podcast, where we discuss the obscure things that are in the Bible and in the Christian faith. I'm Paul Henderson, administrative pastor at Capstone Church here in Fort Worth, Texas, and sitting on my left is, of course, Parky Coburn, senior pastor of Capstone Church. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, and I'm excited to be back for season two. We've got some great things in store. Yes, we do. And, and you know, if you're new to listening to this podcast, we encourage you to take a listen to season one. Uh, you can find us on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, on FM Player, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes. And of course, if you're watching us, we're on YouTube for now. Anyway, well, like I said, it's great to be back here at the table of Fringe with you, Pastor Parkey. And you're yeah. right, you know. We are going to talk about a pretty interesting, eclectic, and uh, pretty mysterious topic today. Yeah. Yeah, it is something that's uh, interesting, especially, uh, you know, if you go on YouTube, you're talking about YouTube, and you, and you just begin to uh, Google uh, this topic, you're going to find, oh my goodness, hundreds of videos. And so we, that's, some, that's uh, what we're going to talk about today. It is. And so today's Tasty Fringe topic is about a man who was and then he wasn't. Mm, okay. A man, the Bible says, walked with God and then God took him. Mm. A man, according to one interpretation, has never died. Mm -hmm. He's the seventh from Adam. He's a very dramatic person. He's got a very dramatic story to tell. And while it's not really considered canonical, we are definitely not going to elevate this to any level of Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an important story because we know that the disciples of Jesus either read this story or at least they knew about it because there are a couple of references in the New Testament. There's one in Hebrews 11, mm -hmm. and there's one in Jude 1 about this man. Do you know who we're talking about? Uh, let's see. Must be Enoch. Absolutely. It is Enoch and you know, he's a very, very interesting character, even though we know, we know like a minuscule, we have minuscule information about this guy in our Bible, or at least the, the canonical Bible. So, um, very important figure, though, uh, and there's a reason why he's so important. But before we get into that, I would, I would like to just caution everyone, mm -hmm. and I know, you know, chime in here, too. Okay. Let's caution everyone that... What we're talking about today is not considered, in our opinion, I think my opinion yeah. anyway, to be elevated to the same scripture as the Gospels or as any of the Old Testament books. And so we just want to make sure that, that what we talk about today is not scripturally or doctrinally sound according to the Bible as we know it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about this, Pastor Paul, is because uh, uh, the character uh, is real. We know he lived. Uh, he's documented in the Word of God. and But there are some writings that are attributed to him mm -hmm. that... Uh, uh, very, very, very few believers in the world consider them to be uh, uh, doctrinal, uh, but uh, there is a lot of controversy surrounding this. I mean, you know, is, is should this be considered truth? Should it be considered fantasy? And it's been a question that scholars have had, you know, back, I guess, as far back as the creation of the canon, so... 
So yeah, it's it's an interesting topic and something that I enjoy talking about. But I agree with Pastor Paul. I mean, you know, the writings of Enoch uh, cannot be uh, lifted up to the level of of our Bible, of our sixty six books in the Bible. No way. And so before we you know get into talking about the actual writings of Enoch, well, I think we need to explore where this story, mm-hmm. where, where this collection comes from, because really, when you talk about the book of Enoch, you're not talking about a book as we consider books here in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it, it's more like a collection yeah. of texts. It's a collection of writings, and they call these writings uh, apocalyptic or mm-hmm. revelatory writings, mm-hmm. usually dealing with judgment uh, and the end times and, yes. and what's coming and it was actually written somewhere between, the scholars, the scholars say, somewhere between the 2nd and the late 4th century BCE. Mm-hmm. And if it was written during that period, then it must have been during the Greco-Roman period. Right. And according to a lot of Jewish rabbinical scholars, it is an important Jewish writing because it's preserved from that era. Right. And, and so what you and I were talking about before today is that it must be considered really important because of the time frame that it was written and how they discovered, where they discovered these writings. Yeah, I think we all have to remember that uh, during the period that we're talking about, which is the intertestamentary period or or a little before that even, the Jews had been scattered. Mm -hmm. They had been uh, exiled. They were living in other lands. They were losing their culture. Their culture was being inundated by the groups that were ruling over them. And so any Jewish writing, uh, I'm sure in those days that people that were trying to preserve history, uh, you know, they, they, they tried to keep these things together. They tried to continue to pass them along. And so it, this was a writing that was attributed to, to Jewish people, and so they tried to preserve it. And some consider these texts, these collection of texts that have been attributed to Enoch as spinoff writings. And, mm-hmm. and what that means is that the author or the authors took a very small reference uh, from the Bible, or in this case, the Torah, and then they elaborated on them, attempting to fill in these gaps. And, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of scholars that believe that these elaborations are fantasy or they're mm-hmm. metaphorical. and. Mm-hmm. And who knows? I mean, who really, yeah. really knows? The Lord knows. And, right. You know, so it's not up to us to really, you know, lift this up and say, well, this is truth. Um, but it is interesting. It does provide some interesting concepts yes. when we start looking at the actual books and, and the gaps that they're attempting to fill in. And so, you know, you can find a, the full, complete text of, of at least the first, first Enoch in the Ethiopic Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, that's one of the only groups... Uh, in this world that believe that the writing is scriptural and it is the inspired Word of God. That's, like I said, it's one of the only groups that you'll find mm-hmm. that it still exists in their, in their scriptural writings. But it's not included in our canonical Bible, mm-hmm. and there are a few reasons that it was never included in our Protestant Christian Bible. And I think one of the major reasons is one of the reasons why it, it's, it's such an important text to the, to the Jewish culture is that uh, the period it was written in versus the period that Enoch lived in. Oh, We're yeah. talking about thousands of years uh, between the life of Enoch 
mm-hmm. and the the writings because you're looking at 200 300 400 BC when these writings they say were written and then you look at the life of Enoch that must have, that was pre-diluvian so that must have been thousands and thousands of years prior yeah there was so uh, much space between what scholars when scholars believe it was actually written and when the events took place that the reliability of the book came into question. And, you know, another reason uh, that it's been hard uh, to be accepted uh, was the fact that it wasn't included in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's right. And those were the first copies of the Scriptures that we had uh, were written in Hebrew. And so if the Hebrews themselves, you know, didn't elevate it to that level, if it existed during that period of time, which is a question, because you said, you know, most scholars believe it was written much later than the Hebrew scriptures were copied, uh, then they didn't think enough of it to include it at that point in time for some reason. So there's some legit questions and reasons that it was left out of canon. But it's still, uh, in my opinion, uh, it's still uh, an important external text. Um, but, but I would say this to new believers, uh, to be cautious when you study this book or when you, when you mm-hmm. read these writings, because like we've been trying to say and really emphasize that it's not considered inspired scripture. So when in doubt, always err on the side of caution when it comes to this kind of external uh, writing. Exactly. Because, you know, you can read the book of Enoch, and some of you may have read it and some of you may have not. You can read it, and there are parts of it that make sensed a little bit you are it looks like it is filling in some gaps but once again uh while it is interesting to read and you can look at it and go hey that maybe that's why this we see this in the bible and you know what maybe it is the reason you see that in the bible but there were legitimate reasons uh that it was not included and i'm fine with those reasons it doesn't change what you and i know about the faith at all it's exclusion doesn't change anything. That's right. And so, therefore, uh, you know, uh, be, beware, as Pastor Paul said when you read it. Don't, don't put it to the level of absolute truth. Right. And just because that it is referenced in the actual Hebrew Bible, the Torah, and in the New Testament, that Enoch is referenced, and maybe a quote of his mm-hmm. has been referenced in the book of Jude, we have to remember that the Apostle Paul also mm-hmm. quoted external references in the New Testament. He quoted from the Greek poets in his day. He did that in Acts 17, verse 28. So does this mean that because Paul quoted a Greek poet that Mm -hmm. everything the Greek poets had said uh, must have been the inspired word of God? You know, you're right. And and the Eastern mindset I know is different than the Western mindset. But, you know, you and I and all of you guys that are watching, listening today, you may reference uh, a movie quote or something when you're trying to make a point. It doesn't necessarily, you believe that that movie is real, uh, you know, that it happened in real life. It's just, it could be just a reference point. It could be just something that they're using to bring home a point. Uh, I believe in some instances, it may have been more to that, to the, you know, to the the person that was speaking uh, in the word of the Lord. Uh, But, uh, we just have to be careful, uh, again, because like you said, the uh, Apostle Paul quoted a Greek poet, and I don't think he thought all Greek poets were divinely inspired. So let's let's dive into the theme of the first book of Enoch. Now, the, the book we're talking about today is considered 
first Enoch. Now, there are other writings attributed to Enoch, the second and third, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but we're going to focus today on the first book of Enoch, and the theme is the expectation of divine judgment coming upon the earth mm-hmm. to eradicate evil and injustice and to return the earth to its original creational intent, which would be a world of perfection, of harmony, and of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, there are other writings attributed to him, uh, Second and Third Enoch, but there's really not an indication. I've read through those books, and there's really no indication, at least in my thinking, that would elevate that to the level of First Enoch. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of contextual problems with it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of uh, literary problems with it, and a lot of contradictions with those books. So I, I don't know about you, but I. I I have serious doubts about the authenticity of 2nd and 3rd Enoch. I I feel the same way. I mean, when I read this collection, uh, when I moved on to the 2nd Enoch and, and following that, I, I I just, it just seemed fanciful. It it seemed uh, uh, not genuine. Mm -hmm. And, And so I agree with you completely. So who is the author of the first book of Enoch? Well, if it was written in two, you know, a couple of centuries before, before current events or before the birth of the Lord, we don't know. Right. Yeah, uh, we we have no idea. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, if you think that Enoch himself wrote this, I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying if he did, then then how would his writings have survived the flood? Um, that that's a question that we have. Mm-hmm. How would Noah have preserved them? I think he'd be a little busy, um, you know, preserving the animals and his life and the life of his family and, and those day to day things. So he may have. We don't know. Uh, perhaps that Noah received them through his his father Lamech, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe his grandfather Methuselah, who was mm-hmm. actually Enoch's son. Yeah. And there is mention in the book of Enoch, the first book of of Enoch passing his experiences down to Methuselah. Yes. But then again, were they written or were they orally passed down? And it's funny because if they were written, there's no mention of the actual writings in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just says in chapter five, Genesis chapter five, just says Enoch walked with God and then God took him. Right. Exactly. I, I, you know, Moses, at least Moses, uh, you know, there's a long history before Moses of, in, in humanity. But at least Moses didn't see fit or didn't see it important enough under the inspiration of God's direction to include anything further about Enoch than, than what's written in the book of Genesis, as you say. So, so you know, him, uh, if, he, if Enoch did write it and Moses was aware of it, he chose under God's direction to exclude it. So, And you have to kind of ask that. That mm-hmm. question of why would it be excluded? Maybe it's not for us to know right now. Maybe but, you're right. You know? So more than likely, the story of Enoch has been passed down through oral traditions. And that's really the way in the very beginning of, of history of how these things came to, to be is through the oral tradition. So finally, in the second to fourth century, someone or someones began to write down these oral traditions. And that's how we ended up with these texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as you said earlier, they were written in Aramaic, and, and then some have actually survived in Ethiopia uh, through a language that they call Ge'etz, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a, a spinoff of the Hebrew language. So 
in either case, the writings, because we really don't know who the authors are, they're considered pseudepigrapha, mm-hmm. which means that they're writings that have been attributed to an author that obviously didn't write them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there is a theme of that when you look at the Bible. There are, there are things, there are, there are books that are written that have been attributed to people as the author, but we just don't know for sure if they mm-hmm. are or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, they were written during what you described as the intertestamental period, which is the period of the Second Temple, a period that spans 400 years mm-hmm. between the ministry of Malachi, the prophet, and the appearance of John the Baptist uh, in the New Testament. And like you mentioned before, fragments were found. Um, the oldest known fragments mm-hmm. that we have were found in the caves of Qumran, part yeah. of what we know to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and who who preserved those? Well, the Essenes did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once again, and we don't really know how the Essenes felt about them. I mean, they didn't leave behind, I don't believe, any real writings that, that said how they felt or how they viewed uh, those books. Like I said, it, it could have just been that they were they were uh, preserving anything uh, that was written in Jewish antiquity. You know that they were just trying to preserve that. Uh, we I, don't know that they believed it was doctrinal at all. They didn't leave right. any anything about telling us whether they did or didn't. There is an interesting correlation between the Essenes. Um, and I can understand why they would have, you know, kept them and why they would have stored them away with the other writings. Because there seems to be, when you read uh, the Book of Enoch and then you read about the Essenes and what they believed, you know, they believed in the sons of light. And Enoch, the textual contents of Enoch, they, he has a lot of references to light and mm-hmm. the battle between light and dark and, and goodness and evil. So there is, there is some crossover there that may be why the Essenes deemed it important enough to preserve it, or like you said, because it was an, is an older writing, they preserved everything. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about, you know, the book of Enoch, how it came about, let's talk a little bit about the structural elements um, about this, this book that talks about the prophet that never tasted death. So you ready? Mm-hmm. So the first book of Enoch, first Enoch is divided into five major sections, and it's followed by two short appendices, but we're just going to talk about the five major sections real quickly, briefly. Uh, the first section is the Book of Watchers. That's probably the most read yes. of all the sections of Enoch is the Book of the Watchers. Then you have the Book of the Parables, the Book of the Luminaries, the Dream Visions, and the Epistle of Enoch himself. Mm-hmm. And so again, the primary focus of the first Book of Enoch is God's coming judgment of evil in the world and on a certain group of angels who rebelled against him. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most fascinating parts of this book. It's yes. the Book of the Watchers that describes this group of angels, and we've come to know them as the fallen angels. Fallen angels. Yeah, the fallen angels. Yeah, I was waiting. I was just waiting no, to see okay. if you knew. Yeah. <laughs> you, make sure you know what you're talking about. No. One of the things about, and I'll get your opinion on this, one of the things that I noticed about uh, the Book of the Watchers is in it. It describes how evil was introduced into the world by these fallen angels. Yes, and to me, 
it's almost a contradiction to the story of Genesis. Because if you remember, in Genesis 3, it says evil was introduced into the world when Eve took and ate mm-hmm. uh, from the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. And then he, she gave it to Adam, who ate it as well. And upon eating the fruit, their eyes were open to evil, right. uh, meaning that at that point, evil was introduced to them from that point, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, that's when evil entered humanity, not yes. that the fallen angels. I can see where they get that, but what do you think about that? No, I agree with you. I think that's one of the, uh, I guess if you could say, major problems with the book of Enoch, just the way that it's written. I think that's one of the problems uh, with it because it doesn't fall in line step by step with the introduction uh, of evil into the world. It doesn't follow the Bible in Mm. that. Mm. Um, And I guess maybe that's another reason why Enoch was not considered uh, canonical. And so let's talk about the most controversial story uh, in First Enoch in the Book of the Watchers, and this crosses over into the Genesis six account. Yes, that identifies the sons of God, the Beneo Elohim, uh, as spiritual entities that were operating during the pre-Diluvian, the pre-flood world, during Enoch's time, and the authors of Enoch identify these spirits as the Watchers. I.e., that's why it's called mm-hmm. the Book of the Watchers. It's mm-hmm. a book about these spirit beings. And according to the Book of the Watchers, they were originally sent to kind of keep an eye on humanity. Yeah. Kind of watch to see Sent by they, God to watch over them. Yeah, to watch over them. But they ended up, uh, they ended up with, a, with a problem. Yeah, they did. They ended up, uh, well, uh, you know, the, according to the Book of Enoch, they ended up lusting after after the women that they were watching over. Mm-hmm. And they ended up introducing uh, what was supposedly hidden knowledge, which was knowledge that was not supposed to be introduced at that time uh, to humanity, maybe later down the road, but not at that time. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's, let's back up for just a second, and let's talk about the, this uh, lusting after the human mm-hmm. women, because I think that's an interesting... Uh, an interesting story that kind of fills in that gap of Genesis 6 when Genesis 6 talks about the sons of God saw the Hmm. daughters of men and started taking them for their wives. And so what they were actually doing is the watchers, uh, they took human wives and they started having sex with them. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really what they were doing. They were having sexual relations with them, and the women became pregnant. And according to the book of the watchers of Enoch, they gave birth to these half-spiritual, half-human chimeras uh, that are known as the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. These hybrid hybrid, hybrid humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I think this is what is one of the things that makes the lure of the book of First Enoch so strong is because everybody that reads the Bible is intrigued by Genesis 6, right? Yeah. You're yeah. intrigued, and you think, man, I wish I had more information about that. Well, the, the book of First Enoch purports to fill in that gap. And mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the things that makes the lure so strong. And that's what we mean when we said spinoff writings, mm-hmm. is that they took right. this section of Genesis 6 of this account, and they said, aha, mm-hmm. well, we know the term B'nai Elohim refers to angels everywhere else in the Bible. Mm-hmm. 
So let's elaborate on this and let's talk about the story of angels coming down and having sexual relations. And we'll talk more about the fallen angels and the Nephilim later, but for right now we're focusing on this fantastical stories that are contained within the first book of Enoch. This one was just the most bizarre and, and interesting mm-hmm. one. So the book of parables is another section. It's a collage of revelatory writings describing good versus evil and the events leading up to the Noahic flood. And it contains characters of good. It contains characters mm-hmm. of evil. It includes God and his chosen one. We, we're not, we're not uh, privy mm-hmm. in this book of who the chosen one is, but many scholars believe that, it's, uh, that it is pointing to Jesus. Um, and we're also introduced to some evil characters, including Azazel mm-hmm. and Shimhaza and their followers, their minions. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Shimihaza in another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting, some of the things that are parallel with the, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve and Shimihaza. Yes. But the basic tenet of their judgment is due to their sexual sin because these watchers, like you said, revealed secret knowledge to humans as well as defiling themselves and that they're going to be cast into darkness and change, preserved for them until the final judgment. And if you are a New Testament reader, then you will recognize that theme, mm-hmm. possibly in Peter's writings, yes. in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, um, which is a very controversial New Testament mm-hmm. scripture as well. We talked about that one on a mm-hmm. previous episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's controversial, you know. There's there's some uses uh, usage of some words there uh, that are linked to other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other writings and things like that. And and so, uh, but but I don't think that just because that is the fact, like I said, that casts any doubt at all on the truth of what Peter is writing there. Right. And then there's this strange journey that Enoch takes uh, where he sees the throne of God, much like um, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees the throne of God. He sees these celestial phenomenon and the places of judgment, the places of punishment for these rebellious angels. And then there's the book of luminaries that adds to this journey, describes how the sun rises through six gates and the moon operates and how the wind, the snow, the hell, and the weather, how they all operate in their times. And Enoch is told to pass all of this information down to his son, Methuselah, and that Enoch, at this time, has been told, we're going to allow you one more year mm-hmm. to remain on the earth before you're taking, taken up, uh, being taken up into the heavenly realm. And then there's the section called the dream visions, and this describes two dreams about the future, one being the worldwide flood, the future from Enoch's time, one being the worldwide flood, and then the second dream depicts the entire history of the world and humankind. This time it is through a metaphor mm-hmm. um, of, you know, he describes the fallen angels mating with human women and producing giants, yeah. but it's all metaphorical. It's metaphorical yeah. because he says that the angels are bulls and yeah. the humans are heifers and yes. their offspring. Here's something funny that just struck me today when I was looking at this, that the offspring, the giants, the offspring of this unholy union are a collection of camels 
elephants and donkeys <laughs> in this current political climate. Sound like politicians, but anyway, <laughs> offspring of demons. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and these represent... Sorry, guys. These represent the giants. So I just... That caught me today. It's like, well, yeah. camels could be like a metaphor of the Middle East and the yeah. elephant and the donkey could okay, be yeah, American yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you Getting stop, off of that, you're going to yeah, go I'm too gonna, far, yeah. yeah. Send all emails. Uh, no, 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 no. And then it follows up with an allegorical image representing the bloodline of Shem, Abraham, Jacob, who produced the nation of Israel, depicted as wandering sheep. Boy, isn't that a, isn't that a truthful yeah, statement about yeah. Israel? Um, it talks about Israel's exile and return. And then finally, how the end times will look with the distinction between Jew and Gentile eliminated mm-hmm. and how Israel will finally be at peace. Wow. Yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, and, and, you know, you can... Of course, God knows everything. But you can see why some people cast doubts on this as well, because uh, if it's prophetic, if this was a prophetic vision, then God knows everything, right? But but there was doubts really cast on this. Was how, how could this guy see this entire history? Well, I'm not saying that it came from God, but I am saying that God knows everything, and he is able to reveal things to people, so... Well, think about this. If the scholars are saying that this book, these textual writings, were written in between 200 and 400 BCE, mm-hmm. before Christ, right? Yes. When did the distinction between Jew and Gentile, when was that eliminated? Well, it wasn't eliminated till you know, the early church. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Acts 15 was really the, the line drawn in the sand. God spoke about that much earlier. The Jews had that in their own prophecies, the Old Testament prophets. But the, really the distinction, and, and it really didn't hit home and become doctrinal till the book of Acts. So would that be considered a, a prophetic statement that has come to pass? Yes, no doubt. So that alone... Mm-hmm. That alone tells tells me that it may not be uh, elevated to scriptural status, but there are elements in it that have rung true. It makes it interesting. It That's what we talked about at the beginning. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. We didn't say it was true. We just said interesting. And so then the the last section before you get to the appendices, which we're not going to talk about, but the last the last section is the Epistle of Enoch. And this section describes Enoch assembling his sons before his final departure into the heavenly realm. And the overall theme to this section is, again, judgment and the restoration of the righteous. But here's the thing. In this epistle, this last section, there's a very interesting statement regarding the teachings of Enoch and how they will be transmitted in the end times to the righteous as a source of wisdom, faith, and joy. Hmm. And isn't it interesting, you said it earlier, that if you search Enoch on YouTube, isn't it interesting that there are literally endless amounts of videos about him and the books attributed to him? Oh, my Lord, there's just tons of videos. I guess you could call them pre-Diluvian, pre-flood, videos discussing the pre-flood world. There's just tons of them out there. And so when you look at it and you seriously consider some of the stories contained in the books of Enoch, and I know that they're, you know, that's fantastical stories uh, about fallen angels mating with women and producing yeah. giants and the travels of Enoch into the heavenly realms and what he sees. And I know those things sound fantasy, but if you, if you consider these stories, uh, especially the stories of the pre-Diluvian world and how these mm-hmm. watchers defiled themselves with humankind through rebellion, 
and how they revealed secret knowledge to humans, you begin to see some of the gaps in Genesis 6 being filled in. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where this is where they get the term spinoff text again. Yes. But, but honestly, it kind of makes sense to me. Well, there are parts of it. Now, look, I mean, you know, in, in a lot of stories, there's kernels of truth. Maybe not everything in that story is factual, trustworthy. But in a lot of stories, there's kernels of truth. And, and maybe, maybe there's some kernels in this. Uh, I would not uh, make a doctrine on it. But it's just, as I said, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. You know, the other interesting part about this is when you start thinking about, oh, how could that happen? How could spiritual beings come down and mate with women and produce half-breed mm-hmm. uh, hybrids? You know, there's something that happened in the New Testament that's similar to that. And it's one of the tenets of our faith. Because if you think about it, God himself, through his Holy Spirit, impregnated a teenage girl named Mary. Mm-hmm. And she conceived and gave birth to a half-human, half-spirit, but fully divine man mm-hmm. named Jesus. That's right. And so if we, if we believers agree on, on this fundamental truth about Jesus, that he was born of a virgin through uh, the Holy Spirit, then who's to say that spirit beings from the ancient past didn't also impregnate human women who gave birth to half-human, half-spirit chimeras? that we call the Nephilim. Who's to say? I mean, the, the Satan counterfeits everything, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And, yeah. and, you know, Genesis 6 still stands. It stands there describing something that happened. And, uh, and this could definitely be it. And as Pastor Paul said, based upon what happened uh, with the Holy Spirit uh, and, and with Mary, this could, this could have been what happened. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's another theory out there, and we're just about to wrap this up, but there's another theory out there about the real reason that these watchers impregnated human women. Mm-hmm. Some say it was an effort to prevent their final judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, some say it was an effort to prevent the redemption of humans, uh, to prevent uh, the Messiah from ever coming, or mm-hmm. at least corrupting the Messiah's bloodline. And, you know, we call it, I refer to it as the Nephilim Code, the code, and we'll talk about it next time. All right, sounds great. of the faith. So what can we really say about Enoch? I mean, he is one of the most interesting, mysterious characters in the Bible. I, I would put him on the same mysterious level as Melchizedek. Yeah, yeah, he, there are a lot of things that are amazing about him about his life. And like Pastor Paul said at the very beginning, there was very little written about him in the Word of God, in the Bible itself. But the things that were written about him were were incredible. Very. Very much. Were very incredible. Yeah, so it's definitely worth a read, especially if you're into kind of the sci-fi Bible nerd stuff like <laughs> I am. Um, definitely worth a read. So that's it for today. If yep. you like our podcast, please be sure to subscribe Uh, So you'll be notified of new episodes weekly. And don't forget, if you have any topics that you would like for us to talk about, be sure to send us an email to info at capstone.church, just like Carolyn Maker did. Yes. She sent us an email, and she requested us to do an episode on 
secular history versus biblical history. Oh. And where do those two align? Yeah. And she also mentions a character by the name of Nostradamus as well. Okay. And which is good because I've studied some of his his text and a little bit about his life, and I think that would be a good episode. I'll have to listen to that one. Good, (laughs) be a good topic to tackle. Uh, Also, Sonia from Fort Worth emailed us, and and or she didn't email us, but she she text she texted us and said that she uh, wanted us to explain some of the new age elements of Eastern mysticism that are are beginning to infiltrate the Christian church. Oh, okay. Like uh, chakras and yoga and trans meditation, chakra, yeah, and how how that would, you know, kind of what the explanation of that is and and some truth okay. behind that. Okay, so that's it. So thank you, thank you so much again you, for buddy. sitting right here, and mm-hmm. thank you for listening and watching. And you know, as always, stay in the word, stay alert, and be not deceived. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. See God ya. bless you. God bless. You. Oh, 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 oh,